0: Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you today on this beautiful Lord's Day, and it's great to have all of you out. We have several visitors with us, and we are so delighted to have you, and we encourage you to come back as often as you can. And if you're from the area, we want to encourage you to come back and worship with us and study God's word with us and grow with us. This evening, Lord willing, we will meet again for assembly of worship at 6 p.m., and so we invite you to come back and have fellowship in that endeavor as well. The one possessing all authority built his church, and that is Jesus Christ built his His assembly, he built his called-out group of followers, and he alone is head, and he alone is the cornerstone, and we have been looking at some lessons on the subject of who Jesus is and the authority he has and how that is the authority that we are called to submit to. And this Christ-built church, that Christ-built church is the body of Christ. It is also the temple of God as well as the household or the family of God. We talked a little bit about those descriptions recently. And these descriptions of the Lord's gathering of saved believers are not simply names that are put out here on a sign to advertise this location. That's not what these words are all about. They are godly ideals. Ideals that basically are to be upheld. They are ideals that are to be lived by the congregate, of all of those people who have been added by the Lord to the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And so these concepts of body and temple and family, yes, they depict the uniqueness of being part of the Lord's church of being part of the Lord's family, but also it depicts the nature of the work of the church and the nature of the function of Christ's body. And we're going to focus on that this morning to look at the idea of when you, when you examine the New Testament, you see the authority of Christ, you see the pattern of the church that he built. You know, what are we to be doing as his people but I want to begin with three verses that we're going to come back to and, and make some points related to the things brought out in these texts. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 4, 16, when, when Paul writing into the church at Ephesus and reminds them about who they are in Christ, and he says to them, from whom, speaking of Christ, speaking of Jesus, from whom the whole body it is joined and uh, held together, but every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. We're going to come back to that thought, the idea of growth. But here you've got Jesus speaking through the Spirit, through Paul, to Christians, reminding them who they are in Christ and how they are a body that is to be growing so that it builds itself up in love. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 3.15, Paul is writing to Timothy Evangelist. He's giving instruction about proclaiming the word to, to the lost as well as to the saved. And he tells him that in his teaching... Yeah, he is to teach others about the household of God. So, so he said, I'm writing so you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And we're going to come back to that thought as well. We're going to look at the idea of growth, and we're going to look at the idea of being a buttress, but thirdly, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're going to talk about this idea of growth, buttress, and proclamation. Also concepts that are biblical, they are spirit revealed, that all relate to the idea of the prescribed work of Christ church. So let's begin with this point. Christ's assembly of his disciples, Christ's assembly of Christians, and that's what the church is, is to be a gathering of true worshipers. As the people of God, we are to be a gathering of true worshipers. Now, all worshipers of God are not true worshipers, and I'm not the one who decides that. But all worship of God do not please God. Why? Because some worshipers of God offer unacceptable worship. They offer unacceptable sacrifices. In John 4, you know, very briefly we're going to mention this as we move into our lesson. But John 4, Jesus is teaching the woman at the well. And the subject of worship came up. She brings up the question of worship, and so Jesus addresses that question, and Jesus makes the point of saying that God desires true worshipers, and God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But the point is, God is seeking true worshipers, which implies there can be untrue worshipers. There can be worshipers who are not true worshipers. Or over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where it talks about how we are to offer up acceptable sacrifices. So our head, Jesus Christ, through his chosen messengers, has stated that worship must be acceptable. Worship must be in spirit and truth. And so our words and our hearts matter because they must be in harmony with the commandments of God. And Jesus actually made that strong point back in the gospel of Mark chapter 7, where he's addressing the unacceptable worship of the Jews of his day. And he says in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, he says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That's some pretty strong language. He is talking to believers of God. He's talking about worshipers of God. He says, Isaiah, my prophet of long ago, prophesied correctly about you hypocrites because this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And so it is possible to be a so-called worshiper of God and not be pleasing to God. To offer worship that is not acceptable because perhaps our heart is far from him. You know, we are neglecting God's commandments and we're holding to things that are not of God or from God. But when it comes to worship, the worship is all about God. The focus of worship is God. God. And that, you know, they say, well, that's obvious, is it? Is it always obvious when you think about the way people worship, that worship is all about God, that worship is all about the genuine expressions of adoration and love toward God, that is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? That is clearly brought out, for example, in the throne scene, the visions of the throne scene over in the last book in the New Testament, where you have the heavenly host clearly, emphatically showing us where our focus of worship must be. It must be on God. And so in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 the 11th verse of the fourth chapter of revelation last book of your new testament he says worthy are you here's this heavenly gathering you got the angels you got the 24 elders you got the uh, the living creatures that surround the throne you got all these heavenly beings and this is what they're doing worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things because of your will They existed and were created. You are our focus is what they're saying. And you're worthy of it because of who you are and because of what you've done. Similar words are then repeated in the fifth chapter. When you bring into this vision of the throne scene, the lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, and so in the in verse 13 of the fifth chapter, you still have all of those heavenly beings saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And they kept on worshiping. The focus of worship. And our worship must be on God. Now worship is beneficial to us. We' Receive benefit when we come together and we worship God. But worship is not about us. Worship is about God. It's about God has called us and God has commanded us to worship him. It's not about pleasing David Bunting. It's not about pleasing any of us for that matter. It's all about pleasing God. It's all about what has God said about worship. What does God want from us? What does God like about worship that we give to him? So what does God like? It's not about what I like. It's not about what you like. It's all about God. For he created. And we are because of him. And we are, we are redeemed and have hope because of him. So, worship is all about God. And so, therefore, Christ assembly, Christ church, is to be this gathering of saints, this gathering of, of, of disciples who are true worshipers. And so, we go back to our the passage referred to earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, We are called as his people to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are are to proclaim God's excellency. Some versions may say praises. This is an interesting word because elsewhere this word you know, is translated virtue. Something we talked about the Christian virtues in Second Peter chapter 1. And you find that same word in that context to talk about the character of Christians and the virtue that we are to be cultivating and growing and showing in our life. It's the same word here. We are to be be proclaiming God's excellencies. We are to be proclaiming God's virtues. Worship is about God. Yes, we are chosen people in Christ. We are, we are a holy nation in Christ. We are a royal priesthood in Christ. We are God's possession in Christ. And he says, therefore, now proclaim God's excellencies, not ours. It's not about us putting on a show Showing our abilities and how, well, look how good I can do this or that is not about us. It's all about God. We are to be proclaiming God's intrinsic eminence. We are to be proclaiming God's exalted goodness. We are to be proclaiming God's divine power. Jesus built his church. Jesus called his assembly. Jesus has gathered those who are redeemed and and we are now his. And as, as his assembly, we are to be true worshipers that focus on God. And there's different acts or different actions we engage in that express that. For one there is the idea of prayer. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about how, you know, do not be anxious, but let your requests be made known to God. And so, yes, prayer involves the idea. It's an, a sacred act of faith where we lift up our petitions. We lift up our cares and our concerns and our requests to the one who is able to answer us. That's part of prayer, an important part in our life. But when it comes to worshiping God, that's not the focus of our prayer. When it comes to worshiping God and lifting up prayers to heaven, our focus needs to be proclaiming the excellencies of God, His virtues. And I think that's illustrated in the New Testament in in, in very simple ways. For example, back in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray and what to pray about in our personal lives, how does it begin? How does that prayer begin in Matthew chapter 6? Before you start offering your request and asking making your petitions to God before you do any of that, what, is, what does Jesus say needs to be at the top of your list? How should you address God? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's that express? What is, what's that trying to communicate? That's trying to communicate the intrinsic imminence and goodness of God, God's excellencies. You are my father. And you're my father in heaven, and your name is holy. Your name is to be hallowed. And he says, may your kingdom come, and may your will be done. Notice the emphasis? It's not about us yet. Prayer, yes, is a time to offer our requests and petition to God, the needs we have, because we need God every day. But prayer is also an act of worship. And as an act of worship, it's all, it, it needs to be where we are proclaiming God's excellencies. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, he got some very simple exhortations, you know, instructions to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord. Pray without ceasing and give thanks to your God and Father in heaven in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Pray to God with thanksgiving. To me, one of the... You know, Simple examples that illustrate that is found in First Timothy chapter five, where you got just a beautiful exposition of praise of Jesus Christ. it's It's just beautiful. And we don't think about this partic- these couple of verses uh, too often, probably. It's near the end of that first letter. We think about some of the other things that Paul writes about that are also equally and vitally important. But in 1 Timothy chapter six, you have the Apostle Paul saying this to Timothy in verse thirteen. He says, "I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ." Verse fourteen: Keep the commandment without stain. Yeah, And then in verse 15, notice what he says about Jesus Christ. He says, he, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's praise, is it not? And that's definitely giving... Excellencies, We're proclaiming the excellencies of the one who is our king and our Lord and who dwells in, in, in unapproachable light and is immortal. But prayer is not the only means of worship. There is also you know, the command to sing. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, Paul, again, to the Ephesian brethren uh, of long ago, instructs them to Lift up their voices and praise to God through song. Through song, we are told to do this. In verse 19 and 20, speak to another in psalms and hymns, spiritual song. singing, make melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. There's a benefit in singing you know, to each other. There's encouragement, there's admonishment that goes on as well. But the command is that we are to sing and make our make melody with our heart to the Lord, and we go, and the Lord specifies what kind of songs are we to sing, and then when we sing, you know, we are to sing with our heart. It's not with musical instruments, and this kind of singing is a sacrifice of your lips. We to offer the sacrifice of our lips, and praise and song is one way they do that. We are to be true worshipers of God because we are the assembly. We are the temple of God, and we need to be doing that. Thirdly, as an example of worship, is the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial that proclaims the death of Jesus Christ, designated by the Lord himself to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus chose the specific emblems to be used. Jesus the one who chose the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And that's why we use that, because of what Jesus instituted. And the pattern to be followed, as I mentioned earlier in Acts 20, verse 7, is on the first of the week when disciples come together. We come together on the first of the week so that we may be able to share in the communion of the Lord. That's that's a brief overview of the idea that as an assembly of true disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to be true worshipers of God. And note that nothing in the scriptures encourage outward dramatic appearances. It's not about us being showy. It's not about us even be entertaining to each other. It's not about that. It's all about communicating in a genuine and sincere way the love that we have for God in the way that He has asked us to show that. But the church also belongs to the Lord in the sense that it is the growing body in accord with Christ's measure. You know, the body of Christ is made up of a people. People have been added by the Lord into that fellowship of the redeemed because they have called upon the name of the Lord by faith in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 18, verse 8, you have the first converts of Corinth. And it says, those that received the word were baptized. They heard and received and were baptized in Christ. And then later, Paul writes them, That first epistle, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, verse 27, it makes the point of saying, individually you are members of the body of Christ. The body is made up of individuals who have been added by the Lord to his fellowship. And this body, a spiritual body, is to be growing. It's about growth. You think about that, you know, the idea of Jesus built his church. And so that building process is ongoing. But since the church is not simply a physical structure, that's not what the church is. The church is not this building. It's simply an expedient for us to do what God has called us to do. The church is us. It is the people, it is the spiritual gathering of people who are designed and called to be ever-growing. Individually and congregationally, we are God's workmanship to be doing God's work. And so building up the body or the body growing calls for edification. That's how you do it. You grow the body of Christ through edification. You, you build and increase the body of Christ or the church of Christ through edification. And so that's why you go back to Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about how Christ set up that arrangement to accomplish that purpose. How will he create this growth that God desires among his people? When well, the fourth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, it says, and he, speaking of Jesus again, Jesus Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so Jesus built and arranged and constructed his his body in such a way that there are various ministers whose job is to help Christians grow. And as those Christians grow, they in turn serve. And as they serve, the body grows. And so therefore the assembly, for example, this assembly and other assemblies, the assemblies of members of the body of Christ are to be encouraging together times of stirring up, one another to love and good deeds in hebrews chapter 10 in hebrews chapter 10 in verse 24 and 25 it's not just about being present do you need to be present yes you need to be present do you need to be here yes you need to be here but it's not just about being here and sitting on a pew it's about being here And being stirred up and stirring up one another so that we do the work that we need to be doing. That's what it's about. So the body will grow. For example, in verse 24, he says, Let us consider, that's all of us, let us all consider to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near and so Jesus designed the body. It's made up of individual ministers. And there are, in the midst of those are various ministers whose, whose task is to stimulate growth. So that through that growth, the body grows and everybody is growing. But Christ's growth is rooted in speaking the truth in love. In Ephesians 4, verse verse 14 going back to that text you very see you, you, cl- you see that very clearly in the 15th verse he says in verse 14 you know don't be children that are tossed by anything and everything talking about the doctrines of men that can blow us in all different kind of directions in verse 14 but then in verse 15 in contrast to that but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. So, you know, so why do we have weekly sermons and Bible classes and smaller group studies or individual studies and all these different avenues of working and and encouraging and building and stirring it? Why do we do that? To Produce the growth of the body that we're called to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse, oops, excuse me, didn't want that. It says, seek to abound for the edification for the, you know, of the church. That needs to be. Edification is all about building up. And so seek to abound to do that. And so this, the spiritual activities that, you know, We do together under the, uh, the guidance, the directions of our shepherds is for the purpose to edify and in turn to produce growth. And that growth comes through conversions as well as maturity. Both kinds of growth needs to be happening. And so the church that belongs to Christ is to be a growing body in accord to the measure that is of Christ. But thirdly and finally, God's family is to be a buttress, a buttress of God's truth. It's not a word that we use very often in our modern language. But a buttress is simply a support. It is a reinforcement to prop up or bolster something. That's that's what a buttress is. And what what, uh, this concept really helps us understand is that a prescribed work of God's people is to uphold his truth. We are to be bolstering his truth. Now, God's truth is communicated to us through divinely inspired scriptures, through the Bible. That's where God's truth is found. You know, it doesn't originate. Truth does not originate with us. Truth does not originate with the church that Jesus built. Truth originates with God. He's communicated that through the inspired scriptures And we as his people are to be a buttress of that. We're to be upholding, reinforcing, holding it up properly. And how do we do that? We do that by godly teaching and godly practices. It's by our words and by our deeds. The way I uphold or reinforce God's truth is by the words I speak and by the actions I do. And can, we can see that is to be in, in our individual's life yeah, as well as our congregational life. That is to be going on. And that's exactly what you see in Acts 2. In Acts 2, two obedient believers did exactly this. When you turn back and see that those that received the word were baptized, yeah, and that day there were 3,000 souls that were added to the number— And in verse 42, it says, and they, referring to all these converted souls, all these new saved souls have been added by the Lord to the body of Christ, the church that Jesus has gathered together. He says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What are they doing? Through their words and through their actions, through godly teaching and godly practice, they are bolstering God's truth. They're being the kind of family that they're supposed to be by the life that they're living. As God's children, we are called to hold to a pattern. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.15, You know, Paul reminds the saints in that city that they need to hold to the pattern or to the traditions that they receive from them, whether by word or by letter from us. He says, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Well, you know, how have they been taught these traditions that are rooted in truth? Well, he said, either you heard it in person by mouth or you heard it in a letter. From us. One way or another, he says, you need to stand in this. You need to hold to this pattern, these traditions that have been passed on down to you. And that's when we're, when we're holding to God's word and we're holding to God's truth, we're bolstering. We're being a support of his truth. In a practical sense, how do we do that? Well, we do that clearly by sounding forth the gospel, by evangelizing the power of Jesus Christ to save souls to others. Acts 13, we have an example of church in Antioch who sent men out on a journey to preach the gospel to lost souls. What were they doing? Well, they, through evangelism, were bolstering. They were upholding the truth through their words and their actions. They were sounding forth the very means that can save souls. But here's another one that we don't always think about of upholding the truth. And that is sometimes we have to discipline Airing brethren. Sometimes we have to correct people whose lives are not in harmony with God's word, even those in our spiritual family. And so, yes, bolstering the truth, being a buttress of the truth will include disciplining brethren, our spiritual brethren, who have strayed from Christ's teaching. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, things had the tone of the uh, had somewhat changed from the first letter he sent to the second, and there are some issues that needed to be addressed in that second letter to the Thessalonians. And he, in, he teaches the congregation there in that city, they needed to discipline, they needed to take some actions that would cause some disobedient Christians to make amends spiritually. For example, in verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Why does he need to be admonished? Because his soul is in danger. That's why. By our godly teaching, and by our godly practices, we bolster the truth. And God wants souls to to be saved and sometimes his children fall away. And they need to be admonished. They need to be admonished with the truth. James 5 is a beautiful passage when you think about the success of that. The idea of going to those that are your spiritual brethren and addressing their spiritual needs because their, souls at our, their soul is at stake. And the very last two verses of James 5 reads, my brethren, if any among you Listen to that. If any among you strays from the truth, we're we're members of Christ. We're to be bolstering the truth. What happens sometimes, we can stray. He says, so if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, the point is implying back to the truth. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's part of bolstering the truth. So yes, we need to sound the gospel out to, to those who've, who have never heard about Jesus and need to know the gospel. How, what they need to do to be saved. We need to be doing that. But also sometimes there, you know, there are opportunities and needs among us where we need to be sounding forth that truth to save even those among us who have strayed from that truth. Being truth's buttress means that the church, we the people, the gathering of Christ, must focus on teaching. We must focus on reproving, and we must focus on training in righteousness so that men of God will be equipped for the work that they have been called to do as the redeemed. The work of our Lord's church is not a social gospel of supplying everybody's physical needs. That, that's not what the whole primary work of the church is. And there's a place for benevolence, you know, and we'll talk about that later. But the primary work of the church, the church that belongs to God, the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, the one that he built and the one that he directs and the one he governs and the one he will save, you know, well, that one is a, is a people who endeavor to worship reverently as he commanded, not what pleases us. But also is it a people who seek to edify to build so that the spiritual growth in Christ is taking place. You know, souls are being added and souls are growing. So we need to be busy edifying in the way that Jesus has called us to edify. But also we need to always remember to adhere constantly to the revealed truth of God, both in word and in deed. And the truth is... If you have not called upon the name of the Lord in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're outside of Christ, still in your sins, and lost. Lost. Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to save all of us. It is such a blessing to put on Christ in the manner that he has instructed us to do so and know by faith, you're in Christ now, redeemed by the blood of Calvary's cross, walking a new life in Jesus Christ. Being the kind of member of his church, of his body, of his assembly, of his temple, of his family, they were supposed to be. It is truly a blessing beyond comparison. But if you've not obeyed him, you've not called upon him in faith by being baptized into Jesus Christ, then you have not yet been added, added to him. And we want to encourage you to make that decision today, but you have to make that, not us. You have to have enough faith to confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died on Calvary's cross and arose on the third day. You've got to believe that with all your heart. But if you do, you've not called upon you? You've not called upon the authority of Jesus Christ. We want to encourage you to do that today. We're ready to help you. If you will repent of your sins, confess that faith, and be baptized. If you choose to do so, not this hour, but even later on this day, give us a call. We will will assist you at any hour, day or night, so that you can be saved. Because the church is all about a body of people that need Jesus, that need salvation. And we want you to be in our family. We want you to be part of us, of those who are redeemed. If you have done that, but there may be some sin in your life that you're aware of and that you need to change, you need to correct. And you've not made amends with your Heavenly Father and with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If we can assist you in coming back to him and being restored to a right relationship with your King and with your Savior. Whatever your spiritual need may be, please come forward make your wishes known. And we stand and sing the song that's been selected.